Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Glenn Mullins. Now Glenn is the director and founder of Vision Unique Equipment, that's View Group to you and I, um, and that's a leading firm in the field of vehicle video telematics and cloud data management based over in Greater Manchester. Uh, Glenn, welcome, great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. Fantastic to have you. Now, this podcast, Glenn, is all about the topic of leadership, but what does that word leader actually mean to you? Um, I think, uh, to me, it means um, someone who gives good strategic guidance and then motivates uh, the people around them, the team around them, to be able to deliver uh, that strategic um, vision. Uh, and yeah, I think that that's it in a nutshell for me. And would you say that those sorts of qualities line up with your own leadership style as well? Uh, I would say um, my leadership style has, has evolved over time, um, probably through uh, through the process of building a business from a desk and a telephone and having to learn on the job. Uh, I don't think this is a skill that, um, that is you, you just have. I think um, some people are more natural leadership than others and have some qualities that um, that, that stand out. But uh, yeah, I think for me, it's about um, giving great uh, vision to my team uh, and giving them the, the power and the ability to, to, to go and deliver that uh, and be there as a, as a guide for them. Um, and someone who they can look to when decisions need to be made uh, to make those, those decisions at the right time for them. Absolutely. And you mentioned a little bit there about how you sort of started uh, your own business. Did you always imagine, therefore, that you'd end up in a leadership position eventually yourself? Um, I, I don't think I did. And, and I think that's probably one of the uh, the key things when you look at um, organizations that have that have grown significantly in a, in a single generation. So if you look at things like Amazon or Facebook or Microsoft, any of those global organizations that have effectively gone from naught to, to global in, in, a, in a single generation. Those guys, I think, probably saw themselves as significant leaders from the beginning and, and have an amazing skill at, at picking the right team to be around them, being able to manage those people quickly. And I think some of us, um, you know, more evolve into that space uh, as their business develops and evolves itself. Um, I think everybody's different. Um, leadership comes out in, in different ways for lots of people. It's interesting how you mentioned the differences in uh, different styles of leadership that come from different people, but also this idea that the great leaders, say Bill Gates at Microsoft, for example, are almost ready-made with some of their qualities. With that in mind, do you think that great leaders are born with those qualities, or is it something that you can learn and develop throughout your life and your career as well? I think absolutely for sure you can you can learn and develop it. I think that's I'm a great believer of that in, in, in many walks of life, actually. I, I have a firm belief that with good application, hard work, lots of people can get into the top 5% of anything. I think once you get past that number, other things come into play, natural abilities, uh, genetics, we can talk about sport, you can talk about business. And then when you start to get into the zero, 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 one percent of of, uh, of anything, um, and you could look at your Messi's and Ronaldo's, you could look at your Gates and your... Uh, and your, your you know the great leaders. I think they have then some some very finely honed natural ability, and not only do they have it, they're very very quick to identify it. Um, 
And I think all of those things start to, to rock into place for certain people and and right place, right time has a lot to do with it and, and that's when the cream rises to the top. Uh, but I think if you're focusing on... Um, you know the general population of, of leadership, which is by by far the, the the bigger percentages. Then I think you've got a big mix of people there with natural ability, and some people who just work really damn hard at it and mm. and learn those skills and, and 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 become very very good at it. Absolutely. Um, in your case, uh, Glenn, um, is there anybody who sort of um, sticks out um, in mind who's really been an inspiration to you in your leadership style? It doesn't necessarily have to be a household name. It can be anybody um, in any context. I think uh, yeah, it's a question on the spot. And, uh, there's lots of people that would come to mind. I think I think for me, I always like to look to, to sporting analogies because I'm a, a big sports fan. I've played a lot of sports myself. Um, and I, and people commonly draw analogies between business and sport. But I think I'd probably say I'd have to look at someone like Sir Alex Ferguson. Mm. Um, I think if I, if I were to draw parallels, he's a guy who, who who crafted himself over two two decades with his with his, his team. Um, I think he always put um, the football first and the and the the success of the club followed. I don't think it was the other way around. Um, and I think that's even more evident now now he's gone. Um, you can see that football started to, to, to crumble, and, and, and the club has, has followed. And, and I think for me, um, putting success first is, is really important. The, the vision that you see, delivering the things that you you believe in. Um, I really believe in doing that first, and then hopefully the the other good things will follow. Um, the success and the size of your business and and all of the other good things that, that I think a lot of people falsely chase, um, I think come with, with the hard work and application. And I think Sir Alex Ferguson was a, a great example of that. Yeah, he certainly was. And um, what do you think um, Sir Alex might well say if he were to walk into the offices at View Group and literally address yourself and the staff? <laughs> well, I hope I wouldn't get the hair dryer, but um, there's a good chance that could happen. But... Um, I'd hope he'd, he, he would see um, a good team environment. Um, you know, we're a family business. We have literally grown from nothing. Uh, we have, uh, you know, over 60 people working here now. And um, I like to think that we're able to, ma- to maintain that team, that team ethos, um, where people are striving to, to do the right thing, the best thing possible. And they're not making the decisions necessarily around a financial result. Um, they're, they're making decisions around other, uh, other other visions that we've set out in this business, and I hope you would see that um, comment on it, and then give me some great advice on how to be uh, how to how to deliver that better into the business. And mm-hmm. I think in today's horrendous circumstance we find ourselves, those values are really standing up. I think they're more important than ever, and I, I, I truly believe that. Um, I think that strong base now and the right ethics and ethos will stand up strong now uh, over the next three to six months. Absolutely, that team ethos is no more relevant than it is now, um, especially um, with moving on to topical matters and issues of, of the day. It is clearly a challenging time for businesses, not just in the UK, but also all over the world with the impact of COVID-19, no less. Um, how have the last few weeks actually been for you as a business leader then, Glenn? I can imagine it's been challenging. Yeah, I mean, extremely challenging. Um, you know, 
it's been a curveball by the day, by the hour sometimes. Um, I think, to be honest, we've got to put it into context. It's certainly uh, a challenge. It's difficult. We're working on it, but it is certainly nothing in comparison to what uh, what other people in this country are having to deal with, the, the hard work they're having to put in to save lives, prepare for the worst-case scenario. My issues pale into insignificance. Um, however, uh, they are issues, and, um, and we've got to, to make the right decisions. I'm responsible for... Um, for, for people's family lives, mortgages, everything else, and those decisions are the ones that we're now we're now focused on. Um, and yeah, it is, it is challenging. Um, and and is all we can do is communicate, be honest with our with our staff. Uh, that we don't set any false promises, but give them the reassurance that we're on it and we can we can get through this. Um, certainly in these these first phases. Uh, none of us have a crystal ball. Um, we don't know what's going to happen in six months. Um, we can only work, you know, in this this short term. Uh, so I think it's been it is tough, um, but we have to put put it into perspective. Um, yeah, there's, there's there's much more serious things going on. Yeah, absolutely right. And um, if you were to give any advice to other business leaders who are, of course, trying to navigate their uh, firms through this uh, difficult time, what might you tell them? I think you've got to put into in, in, into order uh, what it is that you're trying to deal with. We've, we've sent a communication out to the business today to to keep everybody abreast of, of what's going on, and I think it's really important that that, that everybody understands what what you're trying to achieve. Um, you're trying to protect jobs. Um, you're trying to keep the business going. Um, you're trying to keep customers warm. <laughs> You're trying to, to, to deliver where you can, but equally, you're trying to keep the running cost of business as, uh, as lean as possible. Um, at the same time, taking people's individual requirements into consideration because uh, there's challenges around people's personal situations. Meet the government guidelines. And, and, and I think if you, if you, if you, communicate that clearly people can see the size of the challenge and they understand that the decisions you're making aren't simple but they understand the context of the decisions that you're trying to make and and we think we've come up with um, a plan for now that, that that covers all of those those scenarios um yeah i think i think be honest and realistic about the challenges you're facing and communicate them to people Absolutely, Glenn. And before we uh, do wrap things up, um, do you give me an idea of what you really hope to achieve in the next 12 months with View Group as well as, of course, keeping the business um, thriving? Well, we were on a, we were on a massive growth curve uh, three weeks ago, um, you know, developing new solutions, um, setting up new software products. Uh, it, it was a really exciting time. Uh, and obviously, we had um, very significant growth plans. That's that's now changed. I haven't got a crystal ball. I can't realistically um, really think about how how our growth is affected over the next eighteen months. But short term issues aside, um, View wants to get back on that path as soon as possible. Uh, we want to be out there leading the way with our technology, uh, helping our customers uh, as much as we possibly can, and. Um, and um, 
change in the environment that we work in, which is the um, the insure tech space and, and, and fleet logistics. So lots for us to do. Um, we've just had our, our, our path slightly changed. Um, but I, I'm, I'm confident that um, with the team around us, we can, we can fish more, get back to where we need to be. Absolutely, and let's hope we start seeing that borne out sooner rather than later and there is that light at the uh, end of the tunnel. Um, Glenn, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today and I think it would also be fantastic to perhaps have you back on and looking at this retrospectively just to see how those hopes have been uh, borne out. So again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Thanks very much and I'd be delighted to, uh, to have a chat with you again, Scott. Thank you. Fantastic. We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning 
from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately
But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that. You know, that, that wasn't a moment, that was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed... And this applies, again, to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So... You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team... Um, being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? 
just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over to the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about 
the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup. I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I... Yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got 
a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney in australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves i can feel your enthusiasm for it as a as an essex fan i i'm still stumped as to i think i'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the oval or a team based at lords i i'll, I'll get over that but i'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it surely it's gonna be the lords one right that sh sh of course yeah. <laughs> um sanju it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today thank you very much cheers this has been the leaders council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us I've been your host, Scott Chaloner, 
Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.